1: an island of sanity, a voice or two of rationality in a sea of confusion. And I'm telling you, in clown world, that's a pretty, pretty tall order. But we're going to deliver on that today. My friend Eric Peters joins us from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, how are you this fine day?
2: Oh, I'm so good. Uh, You know, I'm thinking, in fact, that electric cars are so very good, people have to be forced to buy them.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of ideas out there that are so good they have to be mandatory. How about that?
2: There's another one, speaking of frown world, I'm working on an article that will be up shortly, I guess, after we get off the air about, and this is not a joke, absolutely serious, that in San Diego, California, as part of a road dieting scheme, you've probably heard of road dieting before, uh, they have taken a road that was formerly two lanes, you know, one in each direction, and narrowed it down to one lane, okay, with a bicycle lane on either side, and that one lane is supposed to accommodate traffic coming and going. And it's part of a climate change action initiative. Wow.
1: I mean, look, I, I don't want to sound like I'm being paranoid here, but Eric, it, it sure seems like the green agenda, particularly uh, green transportation, is being forced down our throats. And, and I don't like it a bit.
2: Well, nor do I. And people should understand, and I'm directing this comment here to the people who think green energy is a capital idea. That once that becomes the only option, um, here's a prediction. They're going to discover that it too causes climate change. And then they'll start restricting that. That's what the end goal is here. And it's so luminously, incandescently obvious to me now, and I think it should be to anybody who looks at these issues, that the ultimate goal is to eliminate private, personally owned transportation of whatever type and herd people into some form of Mass centralized, proletarian-style, uh, con- uh, con- uh, government-controlled, corporate-controlled uh, transport ally in the Soviet Union. That's what America is becoming. It's ironic that people are so obsessed with Russia right now when America is becoming the old Soviet Union.
1: Boy, for, for real. And, and and talk about tone deaf. I know uh, we were talking before we went on the air. Pete Buttigieg, mm-hmm. the Secretary of Transportation yesterday, commenting on high gas prices, which we're all feeling right now, was like, well, you better get mm-hmm. used to it. You know, you better. The sooner you embrace clean transportation, uh, you know, the sooner you're going to find relief. Seems like a really couple... out-of-touch thing to say.
2: Well, I think it's worse than out-of-touch. There are several facets to this. And, and one of them is, uh, just the, the callousness, the effrontery of this 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 government uh, teet-feeder who is is taking in several hundred thousand dollars annually in taxpayer-provided salary and benefits, and who has a government-provided vehicle that's not electric uh, is probably a big SUV with a big V8 engine, telling working Americans who have to pay the taxes that support that lifestyle of his that oh, they should just go out and buy a $40,000 electric car or suck it up and deal with $4 or $5 a gallon gas.
1: Yeah. I actually posted a picture in my show notes yesterday of a long train of, of cars full of coal headed for a power plant somewhere. And the, the caption under it was fuel for electric cars.
2: Exactly right. That's exactly right. Uh, and it's not just coal, of course. It's natural gas. And uh, it's a variety of other... Forms uh, of energy that have to be have to be combusted in some way in order to produce the electricity that powers these electric vehicles, uh, as you and I have talked about before previously, the only way to have so called green viable electricity uh, in sufficient quantity to power this this delusional uh, electrification of the country would be to build a lot of nuclear power plants and curiously enough, the same people who are pushing the electric cars are doing everything they can to suppress nuclear power so that tells you something about what the true agenda of this whole thing is.
1: Well, and you know, again, even just a few years ago we would have been we would have probably considered ourselves to be getting a little on the conspiratorial side, but this seems mm-hmm. so deliberate. I don't know how anybody could look at it and not see that that uh, there is there's a very clear intent to run the economy into the ground to to take our standard of living and bring it down by hook or by crook.
2: Without question, I think anybody who doesn't see that right now is living in some kind of a, a naive, childish childish fantasy land. That's what this is all about. They, the people behind this have said this privately behind closed doors, and if you read their internal documents, uh, you would have picked up on it if you were somebody like me and someone like you whose business to keep track of these things, you would know about it. But by and large, the average person might not have been aware of it until now when it's become so blatant, so apparent, that that's what the goal of all of this is. This business with the gas prices, for example, is entirely artificial. There's no reason that gas needs to be 4 or $5 a gallon other than to squeeze people, to hurt them uh, financially, and also to try, as Buttigieg suggests, push them toward this electric car, which, of course, is insanity. Somehow you're supposed to deal with $4 a gallon gas by going out and buying a $40,000 electric car. You know, that's the kind of, uh, that's, that's the kind of insanity that is, that is driving the country right now.
1: Now, I'm, I'm with you. And I'm seeing um, a lot of people within the middle class not only feeling the pinch at the pump, but let's say, for instance, you know, you're in the market for a car. Used cars are up at least 30 percent over the last year. And now I'm seeing people actually come out and say, look, I can't afford to fix the car I have, but I can't afford to buy even a used car to replace it.
2: Sure. The supply of used vehicles uh, has really dried up, um, particularly with regard to ones that are useful, like trucks, for instance, However, uh, there is a burgeoning market in rebuilding and repairing these vehicles, and the machine shops uh, are uh, doing basically twenty four/ seven business these days. Uh, and so are repair shops that are involved in putting in replacement, rebuild uh, engines and vehicles transmissions and all of that to keep them going. I wrote an article, I guess about a year or so ago about Cuba, America, and it was sort of a, a take on the fact that in Cuba, after the communists took over, Essentially, everything stood still as far as cars went. So that's why you saw cars from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s still in service there even now because people had no option. And so they would figure out a way to keep these old cars going. And I think that's where America is going right now. And I also anticipate that these same people who are pushing all this green stuff are going to have to do the next thing, which will be to outright ban the, the use, uh, the use, not merely the sale, the use. Of anything that isn't a green electric car, so as to eliminate the possibility of people having an alternative to this crippling electrification agenda.
1: Wow, I mean this this was the stuff of dystopian science fiction not so long ago, and it's rapidly becoming you know a reality. Now, I have to ask you, um, what's the end game? Is is this? I guess what I'm asking, Eric, do you, do you see credibility in the the idea that, that there is a great
2: reset underway, and and it's the Davos Look, crowd that's pushing it? About it? Yeah, you don't you know you don't have to speculate. All you have to do is read the WEF documents uh, and and read a little bit about Agenda 2030. Uh, you know that their idea is to herd the majority of the populace into these urban cores and put them into apartments and where they'll be happy living in their – 500-square-foot apartment, if they're allowed even that, and they'll walk or they'll bicycle or they'll take some form of government transit to their job somewhere if their social credit score is high enough that they're allowed to work, (laughs) and uh, then they'll perhaps be allowed an allotment of food, again, provided that they're obedient little workers and do exactly what they're told. That's the agenda here. That's what this Great Reset is all about. When they talk about people owning nothing and being happy, they're talking about putting people uh, onto a debt serial debt service kind of life where you pay as you go, you never have capital, you never have the ability to uh, accumulate capital because you're constantly just paying to tread water, to maintain that little roof over your head and to get some food in your belly. And that's it. That's what they want. And they want it because it will give them absolute total social and political control over the country.
1: Okay. So let's, let's talk about some alternatives or at least what are some of the ways that you and I might mitigate this attempt to, to bring us to heel?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, there are lots of things that you can do, and, and you and I have talked about some of them before, to the extent that you can become as independent of these central control systems with regard to vehicles. you know, I'm practicing what I preach here. Uh, if you have an older vehicle, hold on to it. Uh, get parts for it. Figure out how to work on it. Uh, even consider paying it forward, as they say, and put some money into it now while your money is still worthwhile. And if it needs any work that might prevent it from being operable, do that. Uh, something that would be a great thing for anybody to have, I think, would be a diesel-powered vehicle. And I wish I had one other than my tractor. And the reason that I say that is not so much because they get high gas mileage, but because uh, it's very difficult to refine gas in your basement. Gasoline is a highly refined product. But older diesels, particularly mechanically injected ones, will burn practically any oil at all, including even used motor oil. So it's feasible to keep something going that's a diesel-powered vehicle. And that's, by the way, why Anything with an old mechanically injected diesel is practically worth its weight in gold now. Wow.
1: Well, hold that thought. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about some more current events that are going on again. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. If you want to check out his website, I think you'll find it well worth your time. Uh, He covers not only automotive issues, but also things much like what we're discussing right now. And that is uh, how to remain free in an increasingly unfree world. Stay with us. We'll be back. Just the other side of these commercial messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. Is the Brian Hyde Show? Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com
1: is my guest. Eric, before you and I jumped on the air, you were telling me about a law that uh, either has it, has it passed or is it under consideration in uh, the neighboring state next door to me, Washington State.
2: What's what's this? Yeah, well, in woke in Washington, uh, the, the the state government has passed uh, uh, an edict one-ups the edict that was passed back in 2020 in California that bans uh, the sale of any new vehicle that's not an electric car beginning with the 2030 model year and uh, you know that's that's very not far from now right and uh, you know I, I fully anticipate that other states are going to do the same thing so that we're going to get to the point where it will no longer be possible to buy a new vehicle that isn't an electric vehicle and the effects of this are going to be felt immediately because the car companies have to plan for the future so they're thinking about building or designing a vehicle that potentially would go on sale, uh, say, 2020, 2027 or 2028, because it takes a fair number of years to take a car from a concept uh, to production, you know, to get it through all the regulatory hurdles to make sure uh, it, it's, an, it's a viable vehicle and so on. Would you do that? Would you put money and resources for building a car that you could only sell for a few years in a handful of major markets? And by 2027, 2028, who knows? It might be half the country. It might be the entire country if the Biden thing has his way, or it's no longer legal to sell these vehicles. So what you're going to see is a kind of a stasis, and meaning that the vehicles that are still available right now that aren't electric probably are just going to linger for a long time. You see examples of that in vehicles like the Dodge Charger and the Challenger, the Chrysler 300, that have not been changed in 11, 12 years. And they're not going to be changed. They're just going to be retired in favor of these electric cars that are being forced down our throats by these 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 woke lawmakers at the state and federal level
1: yeah it's, this, this so rubs me the wrong way and yet it's, it seems like I was just reading this last week too that to the federal government announced that uh, that the mileage standards are going to be raised to what is it 40 yep. miles per gallon is the is what the average is going to have to be maybe you could explain that better than I could.
2: Yeah, well, it's, it's it's called CAFE, that's the acronym, and it stands for Corporate Average Fuel Economy, and it's something that's been around since the 70s, and incrementally, it's been increased each year, uh, meaning that each year, there's a set standard that the car companies have to achieve a fleet average. It started out at like 22.5 miles per gallon, and yeah, they're pushing it close to 50 miles per gallon, now, and the vehicles that don't achieve 50 miles per gallon will be subject to fines, and of course, they style it gas guzzler fines, and more recently- carbon dioxide related, because after all, you know, a car that doesn't get 50 miles per gallon burns more gas, so it emits more gas. And it's all part and parcel of this push to force electric cars onto the market, because it's very difficult to make a vehicle that isn't electric, or at least partially electric, get anywhere near 50 miles per gallon, or even 40. There are just a handful of cars on the market right now that you can buy that get a little over 40 miles per gallon on the highway, not average, on the highway, Uh, You know, for example, the Mitsubishi Mirage, which is a subcompact car that has a 1.2-liter three-cylinder engine. Most economy cars average around 35 miles per gallon or so, and that's that's, the best they're going to get. Trucks and SUVs, forget about it. So, again, what they're trying to do is use these regulations to make non-electric cars more expensive to manufacture, more expensive to buy, so as to make the expensive, unaffordable electric car somehow in a perverse kind of a way – you're like, oh, it's a bargain. You know, I mean, if, you can, if you're going to have to spend $40,000 uh, on something like a Corolla, uh, well, why not buy an electric car for $40,000? That's what they're trying to that's what they're trying to do with all those. Do,
1: do you see this ever coming to a, an end um, in, in the sense that people finally just say enough? We just can't live under these conditions. Or is, is this the direction, you know, mankind is, is destined to go?
2: Well, everything comes to an end eventually, right? You know, in some ways, that's both good and bad. And I think ultimately, yeah, it's going to come to an end, and it'll probably come to an end with the end of the United States, as we know it. I've come to the conclusion that a reconciliation is no longer possible with these woke left people. They're zealots, they're fanatics, there's no reasonable middle ground with them. Uh, Same thing with the masks and the jabs. You saw that mentality there, where it wasn't a question of, hey, you know, this works for me. I understand it might not work for you. And, you know, you have your right to your choice and I'll, I'll make my own choice and we'll both be happy together. These people are not willing to let us make our own choice if it's a different choice than the choice that they would make. So I think inevitably we're going to have to figure out some way to disentangle ourselves, to separate ourselves from these people. And I, I don't know how, what, what form that takes. I think everybody who's liberty minded is pondering this question and how can we do it? And particularly, how can we do it in a way without chaos and bloodshed? And I'm not sure that that's possible.
1: Well, this is one of the things I do like about reading your articles is um, you are able to assess the facts, difficult as they may be. But uh, I never get a whiff that uh, you are, um, you know, giving into despair. In other words, there's a, you're always optimistic that we're going to figure a way out. After all, we are Americans. That's what we do. But I agree with you, Eric. I think we're, mm-hmm. we're going to have to build parallel structures at the very least, to make those, those oppressive structures obsolete.
2: Mm-hmm. And by the way, speaking of optimism, when I was a kid uh, in junior high school, I, I, I read The Gulag Archipelago by Volshinitsyn, and it really struck me that this guy who was put into a Soviet gulag, you know, and left there to rot for years, he somehow managed to retain hope and somehow managed to not give in to despair and got through that. And I thought to myself at the time, if that dude can, can, can deal with that, then I should be able to deal with this. And I think that's a lesson that, that Americans should take home today. Things are bad, but they're nowhere near that bad, and hopefully they won't get that bad. And I think we all just need to maintain a good attitude, buck up, and figure out a positive way to deal with all this stuff.
1: I think one of the great takeaways I got from the Gulag Archipelago was uh, he, w- he, re- he achieved moral clarity. And and it only came to him when everything else that had distracted him to that point had been stripped away and he was laying there, you know, trying to sleep on rotting straw mattresses in prison. But that's where that's yep. where Solzhenitsyn says, you know, that's where I came to realize what really mattered versus what didn't. And he also is the guy who said, exactly. look, once you take everything away from a guy, he's free. There's
2: nothing against exactly right. him as leverage. Right. And, and it may come to that point in this country. Uh, I've often felt, and I I believe it even more so now, that average Americans are going to have to come to grips with the the, the reality of all of this, as opposed to the hypotheticality of it, if you will. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's fine to talk about electric cars, oh, we're going to live in this wonderful green environment. When they realize what this will actually mean to them, and the cost that it's going to impose on them, and the way that it's going to diminish them. And not only financially, but in terms of their freedom of movement, their liberty, their privacy, so many different things. There's going to be a reckoning, you know, and it may be, uh oh, we made a huge mistake, but now it's too late, but it's not too late to fix it in the end. And so I think that's where we're headed at this point.
1: All right, we've got about 90 seconds left. I have to ask you this. Eric, we have seen different crises marched out here. After COVID, there was, uh, of course, Ukraine. There's been the climate <laughs> catastrophe. It yeah. looks like none of those are getting a lot of traction right now. Are we in for another round of Rona to try to get the herd back in line?
2: Well, it's possible. You know, you've probably been following it internationally. There's another big lockdown going on in China or some subvariant. That's how they're calling it now or what they're calling it now. And it's the stealth BA or AD variant, as I understand it. And so, sure, I think they're going to dredge that back up again. And another possibility is that uh, all of these deaths and, and, and maimings and injuries that are occurring and, and they're trying to keep a lid on it that uh, are correlated with the vaccines. I think that's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. I read something this morning. I haven't had a chance to look into it too deeply, but it was an astonishing thing to me that. Uh, over the past year, the number of uh, elite level athletes, um, this is worldwide, who have either died or had to quit their sport uh, as a result of things like heart inflammation, strokes, and so on, is nearly 800. Can you imagine that? Holy cow.
1: Well, as, as and a, you know, if that's true. As a friend was pointing out oh. to me yesterday, at least my tinfoil hat isn't giving me cardiac disorders.
2: <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Eric, so anyway, that, you know, it, it, if the worst comes to pass and all of a sudden a lot of people start getting very badly ill or even dying, uh, you know, because of the vaccine, the worry that I have is that they're going to attempt to frame that as another Rona-related thing rather than uh, talk about it being caused by the vaccines.
1: Eric, I so appreciate you coming on the show. I'll have a link to your website mm-hmm. in the show notes, and I look forward to our conversation next week.
2: Thank you for having me on.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, there's something coming up this weekend I wanted you to be aware of, particularly for my listeners in southern Utah. The Dixie Quilt Guild is putting on a quilt show this Friday and Saturday. That's April 8th and 9th at the Dixie Center. And Sewing and Quilting Center, which is one of my sponsors, would like to invite you to come, get your hands on a handy quilter, long arm, and and learn how it works. Actually put it to use. This is like a test drive, if you will. They have four booths that they'll have there at the, at the fair and at the quilt show, rather. And they'll also... Uh, be there to to answer any questions for you. If you can't make it down to the Dixie Center, you can always go to their store. And I'm just going to put this out there just because I know that uh, the chances are pretty good that you're self-reliant or at least you're preparedness-minded. And I'm trying to find a nice way to say this, you know, that uh, uh, I don't want to make it sound like a sewing machine is a doomsday item, but I am going to put it this way. If you perceive that you might need to be a little more self-reliant, one of the best things you could have is a quality sewing machine to take care of uh, your clothing needs, to fix re- your clothing, to fabricate clothing if you need to. And the cool thing about uh, Sewing and Quilting Center is they can fix your old machine, they can teach you how to use nearly every machine ever made for home use. Even the competition's machines, they'll show you, they'll teach you, they'll fix your machine. You can't fail, I guess is how I'm putting this. Click on the link in my sponsored links. That's sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Well, I had a friend once upon a time try to convince me that political correctness isn't really, you know, cultural Marxism. It's not about forcing people to think and to speak and to behave a certain way. I do happen to believe that's what it is. I think it's absolutely collectivism, which means it's bound up in uh, coercion. There's nothing voluntary about it. You either do this or we will shame you and hound you and cancel you out of existence, which coincidentally we've actually kind of seen come to pass here in the last few years. But my friend tried to convince me, oh, that's just, uh, all we're talking about is manners. You just need to have manners, meaning you you take a knee when someone says you take a knee. You uh, acquiesce when someone says, yes, I may have a male appendage, but I'm going to get changed in the women's room because I, you know, I identify as a woman. It's all about doing what you're told. So I'm going to spend less time talking about uh, why I'm against political correctness and spend a little bit more time talking about what exactly manners are and why we need them. Just so we can clarify that difference. When someone tries to tell you, hey, this is just a matter of manners, you know, to post the avatar. Why don't you have a Ukraine flag in your avatar? Why aren't, why aren't you uh, having a Black Lives Matter bumper sticker on your car? Okay, let's talk about manners instead, what they really are. Paul Rosenberg has a terrific take on this with a simple essay titled, Manners, Why? He says, manners begin with an acknowledgement that we live in a tough world, and sometimes a tragic world. We teach and display manners to help each other through it. Now, there have been many misuses of manners. We'll deal with those in a moment. But this much, helping each other through a difficult world, is the proper base of manners. I kind of like that definition. I think that, that actually makes sense. It's about, if I can put it in my own words, it's about not making life harder or more complicated for other people agreeable not agreeable okay you can you can still disagree paul rosenberg says think how much of this world thrives on the abuse of human vulnerabilities the vast bulk of public discourse in our time uses human soft spots as tools of commerce tools of persuasion and tools of manipulation all of that is in the proper sense bad manners Now, a couple of centuries ago, Europeans, including the British, would refuse to take advantage of such things, simply because it was not proper for a gentleman or for a lady. Those were manners, far more than a style of clothing or speech. It was conduct becoming a gentleman, and so on. And believe it or not, it did make the world a better place. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, as we noted, conduct becoming a gentleman, And so it's probably necessary to explain that. While this is true, there are also bad uses of such concepts. Now, he says, I tend not to focus on those in harmony with a line from Jeremiah, what is the chaff to the wheat? In other words, he cares about locating what's good and useful, not about what abusers do. But there's also a certain value in separating the wheat from the chaff. And so the practice of using manners as a cover for your abuses goes back at least to ancient Greece. Now, Greece was a slavery-based culture because it was a slavery-based economy. And the slaveholders developed a habit of justifying their position by adopting elite manners with demonstrations of culture. They ate in an elite way. They gathered and discoursed in an elite way, and so on. Their high culture was, to a very significant extent, a way to justify keeping humans in slavery. It weaponized and defended the border between classes. Now, this model... Elite manners justifying the enslavement and or abuse of others has remained and even pops up in modern times with slavery long gone. And so it's very important to make a clear point here. Fancy manners don't justify anything you do. They don't make you a better class of human at all. And if you try to act like they do, you're actually condemning yourself. Now that said, this is also true. A lack of manners does not demonstrate anything good about you and in fact demonstrate significant gaps in your development. Poor manners don't make you real or give you street cred or anything of value. They merely made you ill-mannered. So let's go back to manners and why they matter. So the purpose of manners is not to make your grandmother happy and not to make important people think well of you. The purpose of manners is to make life better. In other words, badly mannered people waste your energy well-mannered people can your energy. Now, Paul Rosenberg says we live in a busy, interconnected world. Most of us cross paths with hundreds of people on a daily basis. And he says we must cooperate if we want to be successful in anything. So we use manners to lubricate our interactions with the rest of the world. Some good examples here. We hold open doors for people who will have a harder time doing so, or simply to make things a little bit easier for them. We don't block the sidewalk so that others can get to their destinations without delays. We don't talk loudly in enclosed places or where we'll interfere with the conversations of others. We don't have loud and late outdoor parties or set off fireworks in residential areas and so on because these things interrupt our neighbors' lives. We use table manners, chew with your mouth closed, etc., to avoid ruining the appetite of others. I mean, who wants to watch your half-chewed food? We say please and thank you to keep everyone cooperative and appreciative. We pass over minor and accidental insults to keep life productive and to avoid disputes. We have better things to do than fight over minor things. We help blind people cross streets, crippled people get their wheelchairs upstairs, deaf people to understand what's being said. We help women with strollers, pregnant women always, old people, young children, and so on. We reach out to help people who are lost or in trouble. We don't waste the time and energy of others simply because we can. By the way, this is done massively by large corporations. And he says we keep our agreements and meet expectations we set. Opening our businesses on time and so forth. And this creates a high trust, reliable world which makes life massively better for all of us. So manners are how we take the initiative and cooperate with our fellow productive humans. And Paul Rosenberg says if we do these things and if they do them for us, life becomes much less frustrating and far more efficient. It's better for us all. That's why the grandmother instilling manners into children is essential to human thriving, even if she doesn't explain them very well. So the true choice facing us is either to lubricate life for those around us or to contribute friction and hassles to the world. I think that's a really good explanation. And I'm going to take it one step further because this is a place where, where I see this, this play out daily. And sometimes I'm on the wrong side of this equation. But in traffic, my wife and I have two very different driving styles. I'm a much more proactive driver. She would say aggressive driver. But I'm very proactive. But at the same time, I'm also very cognizant of, are my actions making things easier or more difficult for the motorists around me? So if I seem like I'm paying hyper attention to what's going on, that's the reason why. It's because I'm trying to do everything in my power not to make other people's day more difficult because of my actions in traffic. I'm not saying that you know if you're if you're not paying hyper attention you you are, you know, somehow, you know, you know a, a curse on other people, but let's face it if you're not paying attention, you're a lot more inclined to to be doing things that are distracted or causing other drivers to have to react to you. Hopefully you can see my point. But I like the idea of manners just simply being a way to make life smoother and easier for the people around us. It's not a matter of abasing yourself. You're not a doormat just because you held the door for somebody. Or more importantly, because you shrugged off a a poorly timed joke or something that you could have taken offense at. Will Smith, I'm looking your direction. (laughs) Manners are simply a matter of, look... I'm not here to make your life more complicated. And if you could return that favor to me, I would greatly appreciate it. I might even say thank you. Please and so forth. So, when someone tries to tell you that you either do what I say or you have bad manners. At least now you understand the difference. Unless of course it's your mom. If your if your mom says it, you better do it. It's hard to trump the power of a
0: mom. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick
1: shout-out here to HSLammo.com. By the way, I've got a link in my show notes. I'd encourage you to click on that link. You'll learn a little bit more about HSL Ammo very high quality new and remanufactured ammo that that means it's affordable and this is a time where ammo has you know has not exactly been affordable now i'm not saying that they're they're giving it away but i'm saying that it's very good quality it's a fair price and most importantly it's manufactured right there in southern utah by my good friend spencer worthington and his dedicated hard working crew Really a super guy and a super business. I'm very proud to have them as a sponsor. It would mean a lot to me if you want to if you want to get some ammo for practice, you know, to turn money into skill or to just go out there and make a joyous noise for freedom as you gain skill at arms. Consider purchasing your ammo from HSLAmmo.com. All right, I know the uh, the Ukraine good Russia is the devil narrative is being blasted at us relentlessly. It's like a comic book, and I, I'm sorry, I, I'm not really into, I couldn't tell you the difference between the DC and the Marvel universes. I, My kids could, but uh, I'm apparently too old and uncool and over the hill, so I'm at a bit of a disadvantage there. But there's a very comic book-like quality to what's going on. And this concerns me a great deal because right now there's a tremendous amount of manipulation of public opinion regarding this conflict in Ukraine. And And just by pointing that out, by me saying that, some people have had a little switch flipped in their brain just by hearing that, oh so you're a you're an apologist for Putin, huh? You're a loyalist to Russia, but that's not what I'm saying, so I'm asking those of you who still have the capacity to to think rationally and to not get uh, caught up in this emotional tsunami that's sweeping people along, just consider the very same people who lied to you about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq so that they could justify the the invasion and destruction of that country, the same people who lied to you about whether or not your own government is spying on you and collecting information on you to use, you know, just in case they have to rein you in someday, the same people who have lied to us about uh, Benghazi, the same people who have lied to us about January 6th, who have lied to us about the the transparency and the honesty of the 2020 election. The same people who lied to us about COVID and the lockdowns and the necessity for locking down. They're all the ones telling us, you have to believe us when we tell you this is what's going on in Ukraine. Now, all I'm asking you to do is please question Whatever you are hearing. And that includes what you hear from me. Because I'm not, I'm not here to tell you that you, you know, I'm the only one who's telling you the truth here. There are a lot of voices out there like mine that are trying to, to get the truth out to people who can be bothered to look for it. But if you're simply sitting back and absorbing whatever mainstream sources or corporate media is telling you, I guarantee you are missing a big part of the picture. Now there are a lot of different resources out there. I like to I like to read a wide variety of, of sources. And some will tell me, my wife likes to tell me, you just like to read sources you agree with. I do like to find sources that seem to confirm what I what I suspect or what I have believed, but I'm also willing to bump into the limits of my mental universe. And I understand for a lot of people that's uncomfortable. It used to be very uncomfortable for me as well. It's a necessity if you are going to live in reality. And I'm going to share with you again this this maxim that Charlie Reese taught me many, many years ago when I was reading his columns. He says, you consider any issue or any personality that's in the news. And you should stop and ask yourself, especially if it's a really emotional issue. What? Russian troops have massacred civilians in Ukraine. What do I actually know about this story that wasn't told to me by someone else? And if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time, the answer is going to be, well, I don't know. Everything I got came to me through, you know, uh, corporate media, through Twitter, through Facebook, through whatever. But you've got to question whatever it is. And if you don't, if it didn't come to you, if it's not something you actually looked at yourself or researched for yourself, then you've always got to hold out the possibility that I might be wrong on this. And this goes for me as well. I know some people are going to hear this and think, well, okay, what you're suggesting, Brian, is that we all walk around in this permanent state of indecision, never being able to determine what is right, what is wrong, what is real and what isn't. That's not what I'm suggesting. In fact, let me share with you a couple of thoughts here. This is from the the Good Citizen Substack. Now, as far as credible sources, this is one of my favorites. And it's not because I believe everything the good citizen writes here is absolutely, you know, the gospel truth as if it was carried down from Mount Sinai by Moses himself. No. But I think what we're dealing with here is an individual. I don't even know this person's name. The good citizen is the pen name that they write under. But they are very objective in how they approach these issues. And that gives me confidence that they're not just jumping on the bandwagon and waving a flag because everybody else is waving a flag. Now, this latest article, the one I'm linking to in the show notes, is The Curious Butchers of Bucha. Examining accusations of Russian war crimes and genocide, which, by the way, is being banded around a lot. I presume to help justify why NATO needs to get involved in a shooting war with Russia. I know it sounds insane, but there are people who are pushing that narrative and pushing it hard. And if you're asking the question, qui bono, who benefits from that? I promise you it's not Russia you know Russia would not benefit from tying people up and then shooting them and I would also remind you that when war dogs are unleashed you are going to see truly ugly behavior on the part of all parties involved. Now, that's not apologizing for it. That's not justifying it. That's just acknowledging this is why war is supposed to be a regrettable last resort and not something that, you know, we cheer and raise your flags and, you know, and, and start chanting in unison over. If it's serious enough to, to turn loose the dogs of war, you're going to see atrocities. That's why you need, you need to be damn sure you're not doing it prematurely or just for some light or transient reason. And for the record, I'm going to tell you, I think this conflict in Ukraine is absolutely manufactured in the sense that it could have been avoided. And I believe the West has just as much culpability as Russia does for going into Ukraine and, and you know, stirring things up. I think the West pushed Russia into a position where they felt like, well, at this point we have nothing to lose by being the aggressor and invading this neighboring country. That doesn't make it right, but it certainly offers a broader view than simply that comic book tale of Ukraine good, Russia devil. So you consider the ghost of Kiev, the modern Red Baron hero who single-handedly shot down 30 Russian fighter jets in the first days of the war? Or how about the Instagram portrait of that Ukrainian beauty queen with an airsoft rifle and shooter's goggles? We were told, oh, look, she's she's standing up and fighting for Ukraine as well. How about the blurry aerial drone footage from Syria that's been used to show glorious Ukrainian battlefield victories for the Western masses to feed on? Objects exploding on monochromic thermal vision can be just about anything to any true believer. How about an American battleship on fire used as a photo prop claiming that was a Russian destroyer attacked by brave Ukrainian freedom fighters on the Black Sea? Or the Mari- Mariup- Mariupol maternity hospital bombing, closely resembling the staged media operations of the White Helmets in Syria, as were claims of Russian airstrikes on a theater in the same city, which was proclaimed to be holding thousands of civilians at the time. See, the problem is the Western press is pushing these things as if this is all factual. And, and the funny thing is I, I have followed, you know, certain conflicts over the years. And it's crazy when I recognize, oh, my gosh, I've seen that footage before. And realize it's being repurposed, if you will, to show us something that's not real. So the propaganda is not the war, but the propaganda war is useful in shaping Western policy responses. And most particularly, it's useful in rallying the hysterical masses who will believe any media headlines they see, particularly headlines that are designed to engage you emotionally. I would encourage you to take a look at the article that I link from the, uh, the Good Citizen and just see if it doesn't call into question some of the things that are being claimed as absolute truth. I like that the good citizen has two rules. The first words ever written and posted to this Substack site, don't believe anything your government tells you. And number two, don't believe anything Western corporate media tells you. This goes doubly true in times of war because the fog of war always produces the foggiest of propaganda. Time will tell the truth. It usually does. Will the Western media correct their lies? Remember all the other things they've lied about. Why are we supposed to trust them this time? Could somebody explain that to me? I've been very careful not to justify atrocities here. There's a lot of innocent people caught in the middle. But
0: I'm urging you, think carefully before you give your allegiance to a point of view. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: you get the sense that you're being gaslighted pretty much every time you turn around? Have you felt frustration over what you know are half-truths or incomplete narratives that are being fed to you in hopes of stampeding you in a certain direction? All right, I just want to let you know I feel that same frustration. And this program exists to encourage you to think more critically and more independently about whatever information is coming at you at the moment. And That includes whatever I may be happening to share with you right now. I trust you to make up your own mind as to whether or not this is true. I trust you to be able to suss out fact from fiction, truth from error. And I want you to make up your own mind. I want you to become such an independent thinker that you don't even need me. You're swiftly running on your own path and uh, thanking me over your shoulder. Thanks, Brian, but I'll take it from here. And away you go. I have some great sponsors who make this possible on a daily basis. They include Dixie Chiropractic. HSL Ammo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center.com, College.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and also GovernYourCrypto.com. So, in addition to trying to bring light to what's happening in the world around you, I also want to bring some encouragement. And uh, to do that today, we're going to start by talking about how there's nothing wrong with being optimistic during troubled times. Looking at what's going on, I mean, the situation is getting pretty intense right now. And and this is in, in many different arenas. In the economic arena, I see some pretty uh, foreboding stuff. And this is all in keeping, by the way, with a fourth turning crisis, just so we're clear. We've been through these kinds of cycles before. War seems to be looming on the horizon. It's, it's going on for some people right now, but we have yet to be drawn into it. I, I think that's probably going to happen maybe sooner than later. I mean, we're looking at the prospect of looming food shortage. Basically, there's a lot to be gloomy about if that's what you want to focus on. But let's, let's talk about facing the truth with fortitude. Got an article here from Lewis Dovland, the affrighted optimist. This is from AmericanThinker.com. Lewis Dovland says, I am an affrighted optimist, terrorized by the extremely rapid acceleration of a societal state that's moving from authoritarian to totalitarian faster than most would have predicted even five years ago. Now he says, I'm a conservative, a person of faith, and a natural optimist, a five-year survivor of lung cancer, non-smoker, and the surgery and chemo that went with it. Yet, I never doubted the outcome. He says, yet, as that optimist, I am terrified today for our nation's future because something important has changed in the last two years. And he says, America's socio-political discourse has crossed the fatal line to the point it may no longer be possible for us to recover. And he says that fatal line is demonstrated in three events. Leaders in these areas have shown the ability and willingness to use any steps, including their followers' violence, to secure their power. They've crossed the ethical line because they are totalitarians by nature. So this is not to amp up your fears but rather to amp up your awareness of where the greatest threats to your liberty, your security, your peace of mind are coming from. First, the first event was COVID. Leftist governors and mayors jumped on the opportunity to control people by edict and to economically crush the middle class, whom the progressive Marxists and globalists despise. They shut down mom-and-pop entities while letting the big boxes thrive, and this was not by accident. Now, why would major companies in a free market economy become woke and align with the very people, the leftist socialists, who wish to seize their assets, take over their companies, and redistribute their wealth? Lisa's glad you asked. In return for being allowed to operate and profit handsomely during COVID, even when small businesses were shuttered, big business joined the woke bandwagon and became the de facto end-run tool on our First Amendment protections. How neat. The government can neither compel speech nor block it, but their buddies in business can, including controlling social media, punishing employee speech 24-7, yes, even what you do off the clock, and forcing vaccinations to keep employment. It's a pure Faustian bargain made between capitalistic companies and the very Marxist powers that want to take them over. Key to the COVID learning is that fear sells. Scared by grossly overstated death rates, many citizens basically said, here, take our rights if you'll just save us. A promise, incidentally, that government proved unable to fulfill. So we now have a nation of sheep who will immediately comply the next time government needs to control us. Watch the midterm elections when they declare that the latest strain makes in-person voting too dangerous, and then see who protests. The second event, transgender swimmer. This is not about transgenderism at all. Every citizen, including transgender individuals, has all the common rights and protections afforded all citizens, so don't misread the point here. It's about the left's control and domination. And while some on the left may care about transgenders, Marxists do not. They see transgenderism as just one more tool for societal diversion, or division, rather. The individuals are mere pawns, Everyone in the natatorium knows a a male is competing against women and taking their trophies. Now, if you can be forced to remain quiet while an obvious lie unfolds, or worse, be forced to praise the swimmer as an example of women's achievements under the duress of losing your freedoms, your scholarship, or future jobs, then they own you. The mob will shout you down. This virtue signaling continues to rise and may soon escalate to show trials. Third, Justin Trudeau's response to the trucker strike using draconian steps to go after anyone who who even participated or who, for that matter, who donated to their cause by seizing their bank accounts. That's something to pay attention to. Because the strike was, it's a nice way to dissuade anyone who may even think of doing that next time, because the strike was a direct threat to Trudeau's weak power position, crushing, not compromise, was mandatory. Sure, the U.S. isn't Canada, but who will stop bureaucrats here when they try? And you'll notice those bureaucrats here in America were very, very quiet when it came to how Trudeau was handling this. He says, my terror arose because the evil leftists finally exposed their hand. They are willing to do anything to maintain their power, regardless of who gets hurt. Now, in reading blog comments and hearing talk radio callers, he says, I'm stunned that leftists openly say it's acceptable to crush or use violence against anyone who holds a dissenting opinion to theirs. Evil and vile ideas like this need to be defeated, even to the point of refusing to associate with such bigotry. Now, he says, I know what you may be thinking. There are many other issues like critical race theory, media alignment with leftism, the near total control of university curriculum by leftists, the rise of BLM and Antifa. So what makes these three events so special? The answer is, because, is number one, because COVID taught politicians, they can control us without repercussion. Number two, the trans swimming issue means that we can be forced to speak a lie out loud. And number three, the trucker strike shows that any government can usurp power, and even when wrong and eventually overturned by a court, the damage will have been done. I'm sorry, but all three of those feel like a punch to the gut, because I think he's right. Louis Devlin says the good news is that we're beginning to take back the high ground. Parents are engaging school boards to stop the racism of critical race theory. In Florida, a recent bill stopped the sexual grooming of kindergarten through third graders. The upcoming midterms likely will greatly swing the balance of power rightwards. But he says the three things that I just listed are outside of that control. And that's why this optimist is affrighted. He says the game may be up. My big terror is realizing that the examples have been set for our government to basically do anything they want. And this time, there is no way to push back. There's no vote, no court case, no protest. Just sit down and shut up. So what do we do about it? Well, he says, refuse to go along with insanity. Push back against any form of cancel culture or speech codes as much as your personal circumstances permit. Laugh at and ridicule their positions. Vote. Use their crush tactics against them when you can. Attend school board meetings and stop the leftists from exercising their power over our kids. And for those of faith, pray. He says, we need to be the new woke crowd. Knowing where the left is taking us gives us the fortitude to fight it. I see conservatives, independents, and liberals already coming to the same side on this. We're all fighting the evil leftism that is so pervasive today. How long before we, no, you, take a stand? Now, that's, that's the interesting part there. And I guess you're going to have to get your mind around this before, before you can actually make a stand. You need to accept the reality that if you choose to stand up for truth, if you choose to stand up for the freedom of conscience or your own liberties or the free market or private property or any of the things that make liberty possible and life worthwhile, you're going to pay a price. You will be targeted. You will be maligned. You will be misrepresented and slandered. But if it matters enough that you're willing to suffer those uh, indignities, my friend, you are probably on the right path. And this program
0: is here to give you the encouragement to stand firm. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout-out
1: here to Dixie Chiropractic. That's Dr. Ward Wagner. Happy to welcome them aboard as sponsors of The Brian Hyde Show. In fact, I've got a link in my show notes. It's DixieChiro.com. I would encourage you to visit his website. And in particular, if you fit into one of these categories, I would really strongly recommend Talk to Dr. Wagner and his his office about getting some help. If you have been in a car accident and you have injuries pertaining to a car accident, this is where you need to go, Dixiekyro.com. Bulging or herniated discs? Go to Dixiekyro.com. Check out the $99 intro special, two treatments plus a massage. You can actually just call his office from the phone number there at the website. If you suffer from neuropathy or you know someone who suffers from neuro- neuropathy, Check out the $99 Calmare Treatment Plus Massage. Again, it's DixieChiro.com. When you talk to them, as you, uh, if, if you go into the office, as you're you know, giving your information, let them know. I'm here because Brian was telling me about you. Well, like it or not, if you're paying attention, you've noticed our way of life is being radically restructured. And this, this is true in so many areas. That What was it I saw yesterday? Oh, yeah, Pete Buttigieg, the Secretary of Transportation, I'm sure he's probably a nice guy on many levels, but the smarbiness with which he says, well, you better get on board the green agenda. Better get yourself some green transportation because those gas prices are just going to be high. You do understand those gas prices are artificially high because of the policies of politicians like him and, and those with whom he works. Yeah, we're being steered into a position where we are going to be um, very shortly experiencing some, some serious restrictions on the, on the standard of living that we have, have enjoyed to this point. That doesn't make me happy, but that's part of, you know, a fourth turning as well. Frank Liberto explains how middle-class citizens are finally coming to grips with the death of the Constitution. He, and Frank Liber, Liberato, rather, is uh, is a pseudonym But uh, whoever, whoever this author is, has got some great points worth considering. Frank asks, who among us would leave the comfort of his home and go and protest a government that's gone off the rails? Probably not that many. Not after all the intimidation and threats leveled against conservatives and Trump supporters. And that seems to have been the plan all along. We've learned what becomes of patriots who didn't for one moment believe they would be risking everything to attend a protest in support of a sitting president. By simply exercising their God-given rights, a great many of them have ended up as political prisoners. Now, political movements aren't usually carried out by members of a comfortable, still fairly complacent population. Liberty gave rise to the overwhelmingly dominant middle class that has been the hallmark of modern America. Even as the American dream starts to dissolve, he says, we'll still cling tightly to what remains and pretend not to be witnessing the demise of history's most beautiful child. We're told that the precious gift was actually a demon seed and that we must purge all remembrance from our treacherous minds. As our past is erased, we're taught to hate the present and the future. Only in feudal serfdom and communism can happiness be found, so we must turn back the clock. Freedom and modernity are the devils that must be cast into the pit. They've wrecked the planet and led us off the path of conformity and obsequiousness. It is, however, the idealists and true believers who are responsible for much of the despair and misery in the world. Their utopian schemes are an all-out war against human nature. Authoritarianism is the product of their ill-conceived notions of a perfect society. Perfect societies can only be sustained by cruelty and brute force. Now, people desire the freedom to live their lives in peace. We charter governments to resolve disputes, punish those who step across moral and legal barriers, and protect the nation from foreign threats. The United States has, from its founding, held the belief that governments are a necessary evil. They are destructive by nature and should be severely limited in size and scope, lest their growth escapes the bounds of service and becomes, as is their wont, dictatorial and oppressive. This is what our founding fathers knew to be the reality of governance. They pressed up against the limits of their understanding to erase that fear from the struggles of a fledgling republic. If there must be a necessary evil, then their posterity should have the tools to control it, to limit its size and growth. It is our great failing that we have lost the will to employ the tools bequeathed to us. So the true believers are now running the show in America. A license to kill belongs to their bloated and immoral government, not just to kill the physical body, but the soul-crushing torture of the spirit that is imprisonment and loss. To force their perfect society on America, the utopians must first do away with the Constitution. Now, this is no small undertaking. But when the government can wantonly incarcerate, ruin, or gun down its citizens with impunity, then there's little left of the free state. Ashley Babbitt was executed by a capital Police officer who was then sheltered from the public by government officials and the media. An internal investigation found that the shooting was justified and that the officer would not face any charges. That decision created two polar realities. The Capitol Police used one to exonerate the officer, the other was clearly illustrated by the video recording of the event. And this duplicity mirrors what's now happening throughout our society. If you're not parroting government-sanctioned speech, no matter how false, absurd, or outrageous, you risk being canceled by the technocracy or persecuted by the state and their media allies. Parents who stand up at school board meetings and question the teachings of critical race theory or transgenderism are now labeled as terrorists by the Department of Justice. While all the crime and corruption sweeping across the country are tolerated, excused, and often encouraged. That's a far cry from our constitutional government. It's also an unsustainable state of affairs for even a comfortable middle-class population. The rising tide of anger and frustration can't be sidelined forever, and it won't be derailed by perpetual wars, endless pandemics, or climate change scams. I know, I don't want to believe it either. And yet it tracks true. I think this is, this is exactly what's going on. And have you noticed, I mean, I'm guessing you probably picked up on, on some of the different trends of the news cycle. Right? We switched from uh, Corona to Ukraine to I get well wait, oh no, I'm sorry, we went from coronavirus to climate catastrophe to Ukraine, but it doesn't seem like any of those are working well enough to stampede us in the direction that we need to go. So it looks like government may be circling back around to Rona once again as a way of uh, getting us back into the corral and getting us to fall into line. By the way, for a good example of what this looks like, just look to China and what's going on right now in Shanghai. Some of the video footage coming out of there. Oh, my word. Saw a video yesterday of people on the streets, and I mean there's dozens and dozens of people out on this sidewalk, all kneeling, patiently waiting a turn to hold up their smartphone, which has their vaccination passport on it, so that these uh biohazard-suited, I assume they're police, maybe they're military, obviously they're officials, come by and everyone has to scan their credentials. Is that the future that we're headed toward? Man, I hope not. I understand it makes me somewhat of a radical to refuse to go along with such things, but, you know, um, I can't help the fact that, uh, like a lot of folks, I've been paying attention and all the pushing of, uh, you know, you've got to get vaccinated, you gotta, you got to get boosted. From what I'm seeing, people who are triple-vaxxed and boosted still are coming down with corona. In fact, some of them have had it multiple times. Seems pretty clear to me that, uh, hey, this uh, vaccine, such as it were, is not working. So what do we do? Oh, well, let's trot out a new variant. Why, it's a stealth variant. In fact, this one is so dangerous that uh, it may not even be able to, it, it may evade immunity. But still, you should get vaxxed and you should get boosted. I'm sorry. You know, it's it's the insurance actuaries that, uh, that are telling the tale of an in, in, immense amount of unexplained deaths that are taking place among people 60 years of age and younger. And this is not to suggest it's all because of the vaccine, but... You know, you can't really fool those insurance actuaries... As far as there are an astounding number of people that are dying suddenly and for unexplained reasons, how come we're allowed to consider any cause except the jab? Curious.
0: This is the Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, it's a very simple thing to do. Go to my website, BrianHideshow.com, Click on show notes, any one of them. Down at the bottom of the page, you'll see a big subscribe button. It's going to ask you to put in your email. And I'm going to assure you that email stays between you and me. I will not share it. I will not sell it to anybody else. After all, I'm not a technocrat. But I will do this. I will drop a copy of my show notes into your email each day that I do the program because I want you to have the best information that I can find. And I I link to credible, objective, nonpartisan articles that will hopefully help you start that journey down the rabbit hole. You can take it as far as you want, but it's really up to you. By the way, I want to mention also one of my sponsors is lifesavingfood.com. And uh, I'm very concerned about what I see with rising food prices. I know that uh, we're seeing this at the grocery store. The the sticker shock has just, it's it's become a fact of life. It's hard to say this, but we're getting used to it. Have you noticed? Well, it looks like this has gone up again, too. We don't even have that sense of, ooh, that hurts. But if you're not taking steps right now to better bolster your self-reliance as it pertains to food, there's going to come a point where everybody's going to realize, ooh, that was a really good idea. I pray you're not one of those people who makes that realization when it's too late to do something about it. So please, consider what's available. Do what you can to better your position. Lifesavingfood.com is an excellent place to start. You know, the solutions that we're looking for are not going to come from the top down. And I'm, I'm not saying this, you know, in the sense that, uh, you know, all politicians are crooks, although I think most of them are. But not all. There may be a few good ones, but really the solutions that we need are going to start with individuals who are determined to be problem solvers. And to be a problem solver, you've got to know what you stand for. You also need to know how to help change someone's mind through persuasion. And that's done by speaking the truth with love and not just trying to dominate somebody into saying, yes, you're right, Uh, uncle, stop beating on me. Great article on intellectualtakeout.org from Walker Larson. How to change someone's mind. I thought there was some pretty sound advice here. Walker Larson says, I was recently chatting with a group of people when the dialogue drifted to the question of what could be done about the problems in our society. One woman observed that the solutions can't come through force, but rather by changing how people think. And he says, I believe she's right. After all, Political and cultural wars are won by winning people over to certain ideas. Obvious though it may sound, if the majority of people in our country believed the right things, our problems would be quickly solved. Arguably, then, our battle is less about winning a particular election, funding a particular effort, or even establishing a particular law. Although those things are important, too. But they're less important than winning the war for minds. No lasting change can come from any individual political victory so long as the population is fed on falsehood. So how then do we change someone's mind? And are there certain types of argumentation that have a proven track record of changing minds and hearts? Well, a 2016 study by current University of Chicago professor Chen Hao Tan provides some practical answers. Tan and his co-researchers looked at two years of online discussions in the Reddit forum Change My View, or CMV, where users post an argument and invite people to to reason against it with a full line of reasoning, unlike the debates that often unfold on Facebook and Twitter. Now granted, users of Change My View are clearly inviting dialogue, so they're already open to persuasion more than the average person. Most posters don't change their original opinion due to responses they receive, but those that do post a delta symbol. Here's what the study found. We naturally tend to side with the majority. If we find that we are in a camp all by ourselves, we're more likely to question our position. And the study confirmed when it found that the original uh, number of challengers to the original poster's position increased the likelihood that the original poster would change his mind. Next, original posters were more likely to be persuaded by challengers who offered multiple replies, but only up to a certain point. This indicates that real persuasion takes some effort, persistence, and time. But it's also important to know that when uh, further attempts will be fruitless, after three or four unsuccessful attempts, it's unlikely you'll win someone over. Next, they found the more persuasive arguments had little overlap with the original post in terms of word choice, the study found. In other words, responses that brought in different language and new perspectives compared to the original poster's argument had more success. Somehow that makes sense to me. Because it's less about, all right, you're either on this side of the line or you're on that side of the line. And more about consider standing at this slightly different vantage point and see if this gives you a more complete view. See, that doesn't require somebody to to change their mind immediately. It just encourages them to consider, is there more to this that I haven't yet seen or acknowledged? You see the difference? Also, longer, more detailed arguments were more persuasive. Now, there's no mystery there. One-liners rarely do anything other than stir up further resistance. That's why we shouldn't be shouting at each other in bumper sticker slogans. Arguments with calmer language were also more persuasive. Unless you're appealing to an audience already in your favor, inflammatory language will probably convince no one. It'll just cause more pushback. Arguments that cited outside information using links proved more successful, as did those that used examples. And arguments that used hedging, such as, it could be the case that were more likely to persuade. By the way, another variation of that, if you ever find yourself in a discussion with people and you don't want to make it sound like, well, thus saith myself, you know, here's, what, here's the way the cow chewed the cabbage. You can always say, as I best understand it, and then state your point. Or to the best of my knowledge, here's how it is. Arguments that used more personal pronouns were also more Influential. Now, this might be because personal connection and emotion play a big role in persuasion. Arguments that quoted the original poster were not persuasive. Now, this may be because the original poster could become defensive if they felt their words were being used against them. Now we know from other studies that people respond with, can respond with strong negative emotion when faced with evidence contrary to their beliefs, especially if those beliefs are integral to their identity. So anything perceived as threatening or critical is just going to heighten this response. And regarding that last point, emotion cannot be ignored in argumentation. Oftentimes, our emotional desire to appear consistent and loyal to our group identity can override what our reason tells us is true. Emotion breeds often irrational responses, particularly if we feel threatened in our core values, which often include political ones. So the would-be persuader must be careful not to trigger a negative emotional response. Now, on this issue, Anatole Rappaport's rule about criticizing someone, articulated by Daniel Dennett, provide a helpful tool. This really is good advice. Number one, you should attempt to re-express your target's position so clearly, vividly, and fairly that your target says, thanks, I wish I'd thought of putting it that way. Number two, you should list any points of agreement, especially if they are not matters of general or widespread agreement. Number three, you should mention anything you have learned from your target. Number four, only then are you permitted to say so much as a word of rebuttal or criticism. That really is sound advice. Now, Walker Larson says, look, of course, I've just scratched the surface of the science and art of persuasion here. In addition to acknowledging the insights of modern science, we would do well to return to a serious exploration of the classical writings on rhetoric, starting with Aristotle. We spend much of our time and effort on social media, slogging and traditional political campaigning. And these have their place, but how much of our efforts at persuasion prove effective? How often are we in operating in an echo chamber and not reaching new listeners anyway, or even alienating them? If we truly want to change minds, then perhaps it's not enough to simply promote good ideas. We also have to teach people to effectively spread those ideas by being true rhetoricians and pervasive purveyors of truth. I think this all rings pretty true. And I'm just going to add my own uh, advice. Actually, I wish this I wish I could take credit for this. This is not my advice, but the advice that I adopted years ago from Paul Rosenberg that has made the single biggest difference in my life in attempting to reach people whose minds were shut tighter than a steel trap. And that is simply lose the need to win. You don't have to force somebody to admit, you're right. You don't have to force somebody to admit, I'm wrong. You don't have to leave them crying, sucking their thumb, curled up in a fetal position because you just administered the verbal beat down of their life. When you speak the truth with love, and you don't feel the need to dominate somebody into accepting your point of view, you'd be surprised how many people will consider what you have to say and at some later point on their own terms and on their own time will very likely come back to you and say, you know what, I've thought about it and I can see your point of view. How is that not, you know, a constructive outcome? And sometimes, uh, this is rare, but it happens, they'll even say, I've changed my mind based on, you know, what you've told me. By the way, that's not an opportunity to gloat. Say, see, in your face. Ah, I knew this was going to (laughs) happen. Lose the need to win. And you'll be surprised how many people will actually care about what you have to share with them.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to the
1: show. I have a lot of great sponsors who make this program possible, and I am so indebted to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. If you are anywhere within the state of Utah or the state of Idaho, and I know there are a lot of people moving to both of these states, and you need a home loan, I want you to consider doing business with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call her at 435-703-4522. If you're in St. George, her office is located at 619 South Bluff Street. In Tower 1 and 2, Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather has decades of experience. Really, among people who are very good at what they do, she is among the best of the best, and she can help you get that loan you need and make it happen quickly, which is important in a very competitive real estate market such as we're seeing. Again, that's the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. All right, let's get serious about uh, monetary policy. We're all about to have a very strong lesson in applied monetary policy. And I wish I could say, that's good news. Uh, Money's going to be easier and better and more sound than ever, but it's not. In fact, as the Z-Man says, the party is over as far as the free money era is concerned. And we would be very wise to understand what that means. The Z-Man says money, as most people understand it, is the bits of metal and paper issued by the country where you live. So for Europeans, it's the colorful stuff issued by the European Union rather than your home government. Even so, no one thinks much about money beyond what it can do for you. It's the cool stuff you can buy, how much you can earn, and how much you have to spend for the things you need to live. Well, the West is suffering from inflation at the moment. So people are noticing that their money buys less than it did in the recent past. In fact, in most Western countries, fuel prices are 50% higher than a year ago. Food prices have doubled for some items, and the price hikes have only just started to bite. Britain is warning they are facing the biggest drop in the standard of living ever recorded. Holy cow, that's that's a scary statement. It's been over 40 years since the West has seen this sort of inflation. That assumes the official numbers are accurate, which is unlikely. In the United States, official inflation is 7%, but that's using the new math. If we were using the same math we did in the 1970s, then the real number would be close to double. That is on top of the shrinking container phenomenon known as shrinkflation. Not only are the prices going up, but the containers are getting smaller. Now experts are torn on how to blame this on someone other than the people who are responsible for it. Some say it's due to supply chain disruptions caused by the covid lockdowns but of course no one asks why the people who imposed the shutdowns did not think of this at the time others blame the price hikes on the sudden expansion of demand after the covid panic subsided and some of course blame russia well the main reason is that the federal reserve and the european union or european central bank rather created trillions of dollars and euros out of thin air during the covid panic Throwing everyone out of work would result in food riots, so they showered the public with free money as a form of riot insurance. The trouble is the money did not magically go away, so we have the classic problem of too much money chasing too few goods. Then there are the systemic troubles created by a generation of outsourcing and the general incompetence of the ruling class. They allowed the supply chains to become fragile by letting business chase the cheapest labor rates. Now, this means everyone is now dependent on the least organized countries. Ukraine, for example, is where half the world's neon used in making computer chips is produced. But that's only part of the problem. Since the invention of the petrodollar, America has been able to print as much money as it needs. The dollar is the default currency of the world, so those extra dollars always had a place to go. They would be spent on trade and get reinvested by foreigners, usually foreign governments, back into U.S. treasuries, which props up the massive spending by Washington. The Z-Man says the global American empire has been supported for the past half century by a novel form of signorage. This is the difference between the value of money and the cost to produce and distribute it. Now, in the old days, the king would make a profit from the minting of coins used in his kingdom. This was usually a tax added to the total cost of a coin on top of the cost of production. This was the king's profit from coinage. Well, since the Louvre Accords in the 1980s, Washington has been able to swap securities for newly printed banknotes by the Federal Reserve. Now, this would normally impose an inflation tax on the public, but with the dollar being the reserve currency of the world, it spread this tax over the global economy. Inflation rates in the U.S. remained low as long as global growth remained high and the world was willing to tolerate this system. Now, those last two items are why inflation will not be abating anytime soon. The chaos created from the COVID lockdowns has effectively stifled global growth. Those dollars and euros no longer have cheap labor markets to fill. Asian growth rates in particular have been slowing for some time, and there's also the fact that Asia is no longer the cheap labor paradise that it's been since the 1990s. But the bigger issue is that the rest of the world is losing interest in the system that profits Washington at their expense. China has been manipulating its currency for a few years as a way to prevent Washington from exporting inflation to Beijing. She's also been quietly building parallel financial structures along with Russia and India, in order to escape the perfidious rules imposed by Washington. So this is the subtext to the war in Ukraine. Washington assumed they could destroy the Russian ruble and thus the Russian economy. Now the ruble took a dive, but the Russians were prepared, and it has recovered fully to its pre-war levels. Now this is an enormous change as it reflects a new reality in the world. Washington can no longer control the global economy, by having a monopoly on the currency of the world. This is why the current inflation is neither transient nor manageable. The Western economic system is based on the dollar and by extension the euro, operating as the reserve currency of the world. The massive debt loads of Western nations assume that they can create money from thin air, not create inflation, and set the interest rates to near zero for government borrowing. Now the Z-Man explains what this means as a practical matter is that the West is about to get much poorer and do so in a highly disorganized way. Not only will the standard of living decline due to inflation, but government spending will have to be radically reduced. The great welfare states and the American military machine were only possible when the cost of these things was subsidized by the world. And the sad truth is the world is no longer willing to do that. So the bottom line is, Western people are about to learn that those bits of metal and paper we think of as money are more than just a way to buy stuff. They are a store of value, and that value is the cultural strength of the society that issues them. Now, the West has been in decline for a long time, but it was covered over by financial legerdemain The free money era concealed the great cultural looting of the West. Well, that era is now over, and the Western people will soon have to pay the price for it. Now, I I don't want you to feel like, oh, boy, Brian, thanks for throwing a big wet blanket over my day and leaving me with no hope. But would you rather have some advance warning before something like this, before a shift of this magnitude were to take place and leave you looking at, you know, either, either a worthless, you know, retirement nest egg or a worthless, you know, uh, paycheck before you're paying $50 for a can of beans and that kind of thing? Would you want to have some advance notice? Would you want to to have the opportunity to try to better your position? I'm banking on the latter. But I also understand that's a really difficult truth to face. And, you know, I'll be the first to admit... I've really enjoyed my standard of living. Now, I, I don't live high on the hog. I don't drive around in, you know, a Mercedes. You know, I don't uh, light my cigars with $100 bills, mainly because I don't smoke cigars. But, hey, I've had a good lifestyle, though. I've had a very comfortable lifestyle. And look at my waistline. will affirm this. And I'm sad to see that comfort and that degree of, uh, of plenty where pretty much anything we wanted or needed you know we could justify it makes me sad to think that okay those days may be drawing to a close and i don't think it's forever but i think to the end of this fourth turning crisis that we are currently currently a part of this is going to be the norm and in fact i think that the decline in standards of living is is going to be much more intense to the point that people are going to be wondering how do i keep the lights on how do i keep my home heated How am I going to feed my family? This is one of the reasons why I'm so adamant about self-reliance, starting with spiritual self-reliance, okay? With God's help, you can get through anything, really. If you've got the right companion, no matter how rough the road is, you can get through it. But also... I'm talking in terms of what are you doing to better your position to where you could stand on your own feet. And if someone in authority says, well, if you want to have this meal, you're going to have to bend the knee and kiss my ring. Wouldn't you rather tell them to stick it in their ear? See, a self-reliant person can do that. There's also the benefit of simply being part of a community that is working together. Voluntarily, not under coercion. So let's be problem
0: solvers.